Former commercial fisherman and state writer laureate Nancy Lord's work's been infused with the political and the environmental since well before the 2016 election. Her 2011 book, Early Warming, showed Alaska on the front lines of climate change. Her latest novel, P.H., tells the story of ocean acidification through all two human characters, humor and grace. I'm Katie Bosler, and this is Active Voice, 49 Writers' audio series with Alaskan writers on how current events and issues are shaping their work and perspective. Nancy's also a teacher and mentor to writing students in Homer and in the University of Alaska Anchorage MFA program. She has strong feelings about the responsibility of writers in these times. Our writing should make a difference. All art is important and matters, and uh, that it should be, we should be not just writing to express ourselves and for our own purposes, but to be speaking to the world and encouraging other people to think about some of the hard issues that we're all facing. Not just be sort of self-indulgent with our work, but to have it kind of open to issues, including political issues. It sounds like you're you're over self-indulgent. Do you think readers are? Yeah, I don't. I don't know that readers ever really wanted that. There, there, there's been a. Um, I mean, there was a real sort of reaction to memoirs for a while. That when memoirs were sort of all about someone's trauma or whatever. And I, I think readers are looking for. A, stories in more context so that whatever we write, if it's in the context of things happening in the world at large, that that's generally more interesting to people if they can see themselves in the story. So your latest book is called PH, kind of working title was The Terrapod Gang. Tell me a little bit about that story and, and how you think maybe people could see themselves in those characters. PH, the subtitle is a novel, so it is fiction. That's actually my my first novel, although I've written short stories. And uh, the pH refers to the the scientific measure of acidity and alkalinity. And the story is about uh, scientists and an artist who are all involved in working in one way or another on ocean issues, ocean warming and acidification in particular. And so they get into various conflicts and uh, have three main characters. So the plot and the characters are invented, but the science behind the story is all real. And they're, they're students. They're mostly students, yeah. In the beginning, first part of the book, it takes place on an oceanographic cruise, and there's a lead scientist from a university, and then most of the other characters are grad students doing the work with him, and then there's, there's an artist aboard as well. Well, it seems like it, it makes science really accessible because it's about ocean acidification, which is a pretty serious topic, but it really moves fast. And and I it seems like, did you have a lot of fun writing it? Oh, I had a lot of fun writing it. <laughs> In recent years, years, I've mostly been writing nonfiction. And, and I, I mean, I have fun with that, too. And I write narrative nonfiction. So that's still a, a, another kind of storytelling. But in fiction, I just, I had fun inventing characters. And, and I, w- I wanted the book to have some humor in it. I wanted it to be kind of a, it's a serious subject, but I wanted it to be a, a light story with the interactions between characters and so on. So I, I had fun with that. And it was also that thing that happens in fiction where you, as the writer, you don't really know where it's going next. So I would just kind of write and then I'd say, okay, well, what's going to happen next? And it would kind of 
you know, build on itself in that way. So what's what's that like? Um, I personally have just done nonfiction. What's it like to inha- inhabit a character? Is it is it kind of like being an actor? Like all of a sudden you become this person in your head? I, I think that's a really good comparison. Yeah, I, I feel like I'm in- inhabiting a character. So very much like as a as an actor. And these characters of mine just kind of became more and more real as I lived with mm-hmm. them. I mean, I lived with them for some some years as I was <laughs> writing the story. And I became very fond of them. They almost, to me, they kind of seem like real people. And now, how did you get um, the outlines for the different characters? Did you go on a, on a research cruise? I did go on a research cruise, but, but none of the characters are based on anyone in particular. I had, you know, subject areas I wanted to cover. So, you know, one is a marine, the lead scientist is a marine scientist, a biologist. And then I needed to have a, a chemical oceanographer. So, and I, w- I wanted to have a, a Alaska Native person in the story. So I made her of Inupiat heritage, but a, a serious scientist so that I got to kind of work with the multiple ways of knowing things. Western science isn't the only way. She can kind of bring some cultural understandings to things. That's something I wanted to do. So that's where she came from. Um, and then I wanted to have an artist because I wanted to kind of play with the conflicts and complements between science and art and how they can work together. So you're able to bring in the years that you spent observing and writing in Alaska or, or, or information from those years, I yeah, should say. Yeah, yes. Because um, my previous book, which was about climate change in Alaska and included some ocean issues as well. Yeah, it's all just kind of built. I'm, you know, I live in Homer, and so I've been very involved in, in marine and coastal issues really all my adult life, although I don't have, I don't have a science background particularly, so I'm all, I, I just learn from, learn from others. So that book, Early Warming, that really shows Alaska as a front line for the effects of climate change. In the introduction, you quote a very well-known conservationist, Deborah Williams, who she says we're first in consequences of climate change and opportunity brought about by climate change, if you will. In which department do you think that we're um, doing better, consequences or opportunity? Yeah, well, that's sad. <laughs> that, that book, that book's from 2011, so we've had time to go to work and affect some change uh, or response to climate change, I should say. And we have not as a state. I think we've really fallen down on the opportunity side. We're, we're definitely seeing the consequences. Governor Sarah Palin actually made kind of a good start with a climate change sub-cabinet working group and so on. And, and then um, Governor Parnell just canned that. Um, and Governor Walker now has just kind of picked up some of those pieces, but it's really late to be working on this. And uh, I was just down in uh, Washington and Oregon State recently, and both those states are, legislatures are working on carbon taxation in a very serious way. They have bills that are moving, advancing. And California is making a lot of money on and Cal- it. And California, right? So the, there are other states that are so far ahead of us. And I think we understand because we're so locked into the oil industry, but still we're missing opportunities that where we could be a leader in renewable resources. And I wonder if we're kind of in denial because the powers that be, if you will, in the state still want to rely on oil as our main moneymaker. Yeah. Now, we have a real failure of leadership in terms of vision and, and 
just you know looking towards the future we're kind of mm-hmm. stuck in the stuck in the oil age and we should be beyond that well science has been imbued in your work for many years how has the outcome of the 2016 presidential election changed your approach has it made it more intense or, do you, or is it just kind of business as usual for you and no <laughs> i'm pretty <laughs> outraged by the current situation uh resist and persist is the uh the code words i guess it's very disturbing to me that that the um, Trump people have in place uh, the head of the Environmental Protection Agency and the um, the head of several agencies, including the Interior Department, who are basically uh, climate deniers and science deniers. Don't seem to have any interest in basing policy on science, and that that's so disturbing for people in those positions. Who I mean, they're the people above all who sh- who should be. Um, educated in those areas and, you know, leading, leading the way into policy that will get us to the right place in the future. Lately, I've been feeling like the things I grew up with learning in, in public school, things I assume were given, you know, scientific facts have been turned on their head. It's, it's beyond mind boggling. How it's like? How is this happening? We ha- we have a real issue with scientific illiteracy. There was a, a recent poll actually that showed that people, ordinary people, are really very interested in science and supportive of it. But then when it comes to what they actually know about it, they're woefully undereducated in it. Just for example, a slightly earlier poll showed that about a quarter of Americans don't realize that the earth rotates around the sun. And the question, what you know, it wasn't a trick question at all. It was very clearly sort of laid out and, and people, you know, don't get that. It's very, very basic <laughs> stuff that I, I thought we all learned in preschool. Does it rotate around <laughs> Mars? <laughs> Uh, no, that the, they think the sun <laughs> rotates around the right. Earth. This okay. pre-Copernican okay. <laughs> okay. understanding, uh-huh. um, yeah, and just in terms of uh, understanding things about uh, you know you know medical things, vaccines. Uh, there's just a lot of anti-science reaction mm. out there. Partly, it's politically driven, and uh, there's a whole interesting psychology to it. I think about where belief is controlling people more than basis of facts. Yes. Uh, and if someone believes that, you know, whatever, that and you know, elephants fly, that, you know, then that's what they believe. And it's hard to dissuade them. So I'm very committed in my writing and in my life to, to science education. And do you see writers as a whole having a responsibility to that kind of thing, whether you're a, a scientist or not? I think we, ha- we have a strong commitment to fact and whether you're writing fiction or nonfiction or poetry or whatever, if there's, you can be imaginative and you can be creative and you can construct other worlds and so on. But I think we all, we need to be clear about what's fantasy and what is fact and in just make, make that distinction and bring people along with us. I'm really interested in that phenomenon and this, the psychology behind it. And I, I guess in a complicated, troubled world, it's very comforting to have some source of assurance that mm-hmm. so you don't I guess so that you don't really have to think that hard for yourself if if there's a framework for your belief system and you can just say, you know whether it's religion or something else, you just say that's what I believe, then that's comforting. There's probably a book in that. There's probably a book has been written about that for all we know. I'll have to look it up. Yeah, I, I, I think I think there are several, and it's it's all fascinating. Speaking of the commander in chief who not shall not be named, mm. we we've had our very own congressman now for more than four decades. I think he's been denying basic scientific facts for a long time and insulting people who don't go along with him. Yet he 
keeps being elected by Alaskans. Apparently, he's telling them what they want to hear. And I, I used to wonder where the people like Congressman Young really didn't know or they knew and they were just politically driven. And I've, I've decided it's the latter. They, they have to know, for example, yeah. climate change. Yeah. They have to know that that has to do with the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere and the, the science behind that. It's just, you just you can't deny the science of that if you know anything. But they've chosen because of the influence of industry or donors to their campaigns or whatever. But in my book, in my book, PH, I do have reference to a denying uh, congressperson. And mm. I actually use some direct quotes oh, you do. from Congressman Young without attributing them to him, but to a fictional congressman. What's what's his name in the book? He's not named. Oh, just, he shall not be named. Yeah, okay. one, one of the characters just said, I, you know, I, I can't believe that the congressman came to our campus and said this, and all the students were stunned. How? Why is he telling us that? <laughs> <laughs> He's got to know that that's, you know, not true. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of, of industry, I mean, salmon is a huge industry in this state. I think it's vying with tourism in terms of the okay. dollar impact. And now you recently edited a, uh, an anthology of essays on salmon. I did. It's called Made of Salmon, and it's an anthology of 21 Alaskan essayists and another 33 normal Alaskans, regular Alaskans, who told sort of shorter hmm. uh, little anecdotal stories about their connections to salmon. Yeah, it's called Made of Salmon. It's a, it was a project of the Salmon Project, um, which is a, a nonprofit, and it's a it's a lovely book. Something I, I felt fortunate to be involved with. I haven't had a chance to take a close look at it, but was it more people's personal experiences with salmon, or God? Just this morning, I was seeing on the TV news all you know three different closures of salmon fisheries. Oh yeah, yeah. And that's due due to uh, uh, diminishing stocks and returns, I imagine. Yes. Salmon management issues are, are not easy. What we did was we had all the essayists read The King of Fish uh, by David Montgomery, which is a book about the history of salmon through the through history across the world. And is, this, then, is this an Alaskan author? No, he's from uh, Washington State. Uh-huh. And he doesn't co- he, he ends with the Pacific Northwest, so he doesn't get into Alaska. So we had them read that. And, of course, it's a story of, of disappearance. Of the, you know, salmon oh, everywhere else sure. are gone, basically. And then we posed sort of a series of questions and said, you know, here, just here are some things to think about, and then you can write anything you want. And so some of the essays are um, very personal. Some of them are sort of more cultural. Some of them are... are political about, you know, maybe how the system should be reformed or how things are being lost and people are derelict in their responsibilities. And so it's a real variety. And Ernestine Hayes is one of the writers from down here who just Mm. wrote a very beautiful kind of lyrical, unusual, cultural Mm -hmm. piece related to salmon. What strikes me is with all this craziness, all the the rollbacks of just about every regulation you can imagine um, out of Washington, D.C., and now uh, our congressional delegation Going along with that, you know, looking at rolling back some, some of the Tongass Land Management Plan, for example, protections for salmon. Again, I don't get is this is a moneymaker. This is an industry. This is a job creator and has been 
for the life throughout the life of our state. Why would you want to risk that? You're asking the wrong <laughs> the wrong person. It makes yeah. no sense. It makes yeah. no yeah. sense to be undoing a process that had so much public participation, the, the Tongass plan, and um, reached a you know a reasonable compromise. And so so it's clear that it's just it's being done in the interests of particular industries. And that's at the the root of, you know, I think real corruption in our political system having to do with campaign finance and, and so on. And and then the current president's attitude that all regulation is bad and we should just get rid of it all and kind of have a free-for-all, let industry and businesses do what, what they will and somehow, you know, that, a belief that that's going to improve everyone's lives. Um, so, yeah, so, I mean, we're losing environmental protections ev- everywhere and it, not only environmental, but but health, and it's a huge concern. It's going to be hard to turn that around. Well, let's get back to your writing. What's on the horizon for you? Is, is there a project you're working on now? I've been working for a little bit here on more short stories. Short fiction is kind of my first first love, and I'm going back there. And my stories mostly seem to have some kind of either science or environmental base. I don't know what I'm most interested in right now, and I'm interested in writing short things that I can mm-hmm. I can finish in a reasonable time instead of a novel length. But you now your first book was was short fiction, right? My first two books were short stories. Mm-hmm. Right, and uh, and tell me a little bit about about your you know your your writing life, how it all started, and were you in Alaska when you started? Well, I I actually I came to Alaska before I finished college, and the school I was at let me do in, an independent project and and field study, uh, which involved writing. Um, and so, so actually, when I moved to Alaska at the age of 21, from where? From Massachusetts, mm-hmm. New Hampshire, and Massachusetts. I found that writing was my way to figure out where I was, what was happening, and a, a way to learn new things. Um, so I just kind of got right into it. And then I was very fortunate. I was writing. I had a little writing group in Homer, you know, friends who were doing the same, and I was kind of building up a little body of. Of work, and then the the state arts council held a contest for short story collections that I bundled up my stories and sent them in, and and ended up winning that. So that was my first book, and then I got serious about writing, and and um, mm-hmm. went back to school and got a an MFA. So you're coming full circle with your with your current project. Yeah, yeah, going <laughs> going back to the. Mm-hmm. The roots. Oh, hopefully, I'm a better writer now, though. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Writer laureate at one point. Well, and for how many years have you been in Alaska now? Forty-five. Yeah. I, well, I like to say all my all my adult life. So I guess that just I guess I just told you how old I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I'd like to end these interviews on a somewhat hopeful note. Getting back to Don Young, you know, you end early warming your 2011 mm-hmm. uh, book about climate uh, effects in Alaska with his questioning young people in Kodiak on the hard evidence for, say, global warming or ocean acidification. But you end with this hope that they'll resolve to do what must be done. Young people now currently are making a huge statement on sensible and safe gun laws. I mean, they're, boy, they're marching in the streets and very articulate, testifying in the Alaska State Legislature to Congress. Do you think that young people uh, which seem to be a, a lot of our hope right now, could could have that same kind of impact for re- environmental responsibility. Oh, a- absolutely, they they are. I think I think we're seeing it all all the time. Young, I mean, they're they're the ones who have 
most at stake, and they seem to really be stepping up. We had these, what's it called, the Children's Trust uh, lawsuit in Alaska and other states and nationally about climate change. Right. Um, and um, I've spoken at a few colleges, including in Washington State in recent years, and there's a lot going on on college campuses, I think, you know, more outside of Alaska, but in Alaska as, as well. Really very impassioned, uh, knowledgeable, articulate students who are working on renewable resources and sustainability issues and resilience and adaptation and, you know, looking to the future to really have a positive effect. I'm a little bit ho- hopeful that they're the ones who will take the reins and insist on change. Nancy Lord, thank you so much for joining us for Active Voice. Oh, thank you, Katie. It was my pleasure. Thanks for listening to Active Voice, 49 Writers' audio series companion to our Active Voice Writers Respond blog, a forum for respectful discussion and debate on current events and issues. The ideas expressed on Active Voice are not necessarily shared by 49 Writers. Original music by Liz Snyder and Alex Cutlars. Hear, read, and learn more at 49writers.org.